0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom brought us a message all about David and Goliath. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. It is great to be able to come and be here with you and share something that hopefully is helpful. Welcome, everyone, that's online. So glad you guys were able to dial in. Uh, It is no secret that this has been a a busy, active time here at the church. Uh, It was only a few weeks ago that we had church cleanup day, which went awesome, and then we had uh, Easter Easter Feaster, which, by the way, is a great name for an outreach event, despite what some people may say is a great name for an outreach event. And then of course we had Resurrection Sunday, and then last week we had One Day to Feed the World. So there's been a lot that's been happening, uh, but it was really cool this past week we spent some time, uh, every Tuesday we get together as a staff and we pray and we spend time worshiping. And this last week, unprompted, unscripted, uh, we ended up just sort of sharing some stories and then Pastor Mike started talking about some great uh, interactions he'd had. And he was talking about how he'd led someone to the Lord in a hospital room. And then someone else started talking a story, uh, stories about people who came to Easter Feast and then came back for Easter service. and they came back the next week, and they're here again this morning, and, you know, all these kind of things are happening, and students are, you know, sort of getting plugged in on a Wednesday night, and great things are happening. And so I say that to say that Word of Life, we're part of a church where we are outward focused. We are not an inward focused church. We want to be outward focused. We care about our community. We care about the people around us. We care about our neighbors and the people that we work with that don't share our faith. We want them to know the goodness and the love and the, you know, the peace that they can have in a relationship with God. And we are seeing that happen. There are story after story. Story of God moving in incredible ways. It's great that we're able to see a video of someone sharing at their baptism, and I cannot wait for baptisms coming up later on this month. So we are a church on a mission, and it's good, and it's right, and it's appropriate that the church has that response because the church is called, it is a God-ordained thing that the church is making a difference. Right. That We need to be making a difference, and that is something that we need to be taking seriously. We need to be in the the mindset and we need to have the attitude and the outlook and the approach that we are called to make a difference in the lives of people. To do that, we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a God-honoring church. One of the signs of a healthy church is that the church is heavily encouraging people to get into the Bible to read the Bible for themselves, not just satisfied with one person getting up on a Sunday morning and sharing something, which hopefully is good and grounded in the truth, but is also a heavy encouragement of you go home, you read the Bible, you get into the Bible yourself, you dig into the Word, you find out what God's saying, you see what's saying, you make sure that the person that gets up there and yaks on a Sunday morning knows what they're talking about. You dig into the Bible. And what I found over years of ministry now is that reading one sentence out of the Bible a day is better than no sentence. So I encourage everyone, dig into the Bible. We are a Bible-believing church, which means we should be a Bible-reading church. That is going to be a T-shirt before the end of the summer. Well, one of the things that stands out, if you do read the Bible, and you are an active Bible reader, it's clear as day to see that the Bible is a story. So much of the Bible is story. Yeah, there's, there's poetry in there, and there's prophetic uh, you know, literature that's in there. There's all kinds of different things, but a, a massive percentage of the Bible is narrative. It is story, and it is a story of God's promises being unfolded. It's God's promises being fulfilled. And in the light of that, as, as this idea of uh, you know faith, living a life of faith, being a church with an outward perspective... This idea that the Bible is the the story of God fulfilling his promises. I want to just share with you a definition of faith that ties to all this, and then we want to look at David and Goliath today. But the best definition I've ever heard for faith is, faith is believing in and committing to a promise. The faith is believing in and committing to a promise. Now, the Bible is the story of God fulfilling his promises, and the Bible itself is filled with hundreds of promises. For instance, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No weapon forged against you shall prosper. All things work together for the greater good for those that love Christ Jesus and hundreds of others. But all these individual promises, they build towards the overall promise of God that he is restoring the broken relationship between himself and humanity. And that is the story of the Bible. And this has been fulfilled. If one person claps, we all have to. It's a rule. I'm not too legalistic, but I'm about that. The story of the Bible is God fulfilling his promises. Fulfilling the many, many, the hundreds of promises that he has made. God fulfilling those. And the promise all built towards that promise that the broken relationship that is between God and humanity is being fixed. And that is completed, fulfilled, and accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians one twenty. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. All of God's promises, all the promises that you could find in the Old Testament, have been accomplished and fulfilled in the person of Jesus through the death and resurrection. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and for me, and he rose again from the grave three days later, and our lives are centered on that belief. Centered on the belief of the empty grave, centered on the belief that he went to the cross for you and for me for the price that we could never ever pay. And consequently, we're committed to live with Jesus as the Lord of our lives, confident in the promise that he is the savior of the world and that we're being restored into the people he created us to be. That is the life of faith. Faith is believing in and committing to a promise. As I mentioned, we're going to get into David and Goliath today, and it's probably, mm, I'm pretty confident to say, it's the best known story of the Old Testament. I'm assuming here that everyone knows the story of the little shepherd boy and the big scary giant. And one of the reasons that I think this story is so well known is that it's easy to tell kids. One of the things we don't tell kids is how David takes Goliath's swords and chops his head off. We do in the woodhouse, and the reenactment was not pretty. But... David and Goliath is renowned for being an underdog story. And people everywhere love an underdog story. And in many ways, it's the basis of a massive percentage of stories we tell in movies or novels, is this idea of an underdog. The idea that there's an impossible challenge, or an undefeatable opponent. You know, think about the rebels versus the empire in Star Wars. Or the challenge of Dorothy getting home in The Wizard of Oz. Or Indiana Jones against the Nazis. Or Michael Scarn against Golden Face. Or England in every single World Cup. That's a true underdog story that never has a happy ending. But think about superhero movies. They all have this deep challenge of overcoming or someone that, you know, that is indefeatable, something like that, that you know, this idea of being such a massive challenge, there's no possible way they can do it, but it's an underdog story, so come on, they're gonna do it. We love underdog stories. And David and Goliath, it is an underdog story, and so much so that it's become synonymous that we would describe an underdog story as being a David and Goliath type event. But the story of David and Goliath is not simply an underdog story about an unlikely hero. It's an example of faithfulness. David is presented as a role model for faith, and we're also given examples of people living distant from the promises of God. Like all stories in the Bible, it's a story that helps bring understanding about God fulfilling his promises and consequently how to live a life of faith. So in the story of David and Goliath, there's a military standoff between two armies, the Israelites and the Philistines. And Goliath, he sets the challenge to fight one other person. He's a philistine. I will come out. I want to fight one other person, an Israelite. And David comes, and it goes differently than expected. And we're going to walk through the whole account in just a moment. But before we do, I want to look at uh, two portions from some books I read this week in preparation for today that kind of help set the scene. The first one is from a commentary uh, that says, The Israelite army judged the situation by what they saw with their eyes. Hence, they were very frightened. Without faith... Without believing in and without committing to a promise, we see only negatively when faced with difficulties. We forget our status as God's people and lose confidence in God. But David saw and judged everything by faith. He saw and judged everything by believing in and committing to a promise. Another one that I read this week, David has learned to see things others cannot see. Just as God told Samuel that God sees in a way unlike humans, now David has learned to see things from God's perspective. What God and David see in the Valley of Elah is very different from the view of the Israelite soldiers. Faith changes our perspective. Faith corrects our approach. Faith adjusts our values and our conduct. Believing in and committing to the promises of God causes us to live differently. Faith determines our response to life. In the face of life's difficulties, believing the promises of God isn't easy. In the grind of daily life and ongoing temptation to abandon God, being committed to the promises of God is often a challenge. I wrote this down this week and maybe it's helpful for you to take a note of this too, but what I wrote is most people have good reasons for giving up on faith, but everyone has better reasons for staying faithful. Most people have good reasons for giving up on faith, But everyone has better reasons for staying faithful. Life has hit most of us in ways that we now have a list of reasons why we could give up on faith. We could justify no longer living committed to the promises of God, not centering our lives on a belief in God's promises. But no matter what the reasons are, they are superseded by the reasons to remain faithful no matter what. And the very famous story, David and Goliath has something to teach us about this. So we're going to dig into the passage. At this point, the Philistines were Israel's persistent enemy. And they were more sophisticated. Philistine was more powerful. Had a better army, stronger army. They were better equipped for battle than the Israelites. And Israel's first ever king, Saul, he had a long history of being weak, of rejecting God. And God had declared that Saul was not going to carry the anointing of the king any longer. Essentially, making Saul king in name only. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 starting in verse 1 The Philistines I think in America somebody say the Philistines I'm gonna say in the Queen's English the Philistines Now mustered their army for battle and camped between Sokar and Judah and Azekah at Ephes Saul counted by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them then Goliath A Philistine champion from Gath came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds He also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder The shaft of his beam was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying his shield now The message here is very clear, it's unmissable, this guy is big, he's powerful, he's strong, he should win any fight with anyone anywhere ever. Not only is he enormous, not only is he physically daunting, he's also got robust armor, great equipment that he's able to win any fight that he could come up against. I mean, the tip of his spear is 15 pounds. The message is simple, this guy is undefeatable. Goes on verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites, Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm a Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. I read this week as getting ready for today that there was something called, uh, has been known by historians as the combat of champions. And so that appears to uh, be what's happening here where Goliath is challenging, I'm one person from one army, you send me one person from your army, and we're going to square off and we're going to figure this out man to man. It appears to have been pretty commonplace in the ancient world, the idea that two fighters, the champion from each, would fight one on one. And the idea was that if your champion loses, it's interpreted that that's how the battle's going to go. So then the next step might be to call off the fight altogether and instead we're gonna negotiate this thing and we're gonna try and work something out as peacefully as possible because of how the one-on-one fight goes. So that appears to be what Goliath is doing by laying down this challenge. Is that okay, one-on-one, we're gonna figure this out, we're gonna fight this battle. Now in all the Israelite army, who would be the best person to go out and fight the giant? King Saul. King Saul is the logical choice to go out and fight this fight. We see back in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. You got a giant? Who's the logical person to send out? The biggest guy you got. Also in chapter 10, so they found him and brought him out and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. So King Saul is the biggest guy the Israelite army has. He should be the one out there leading the charge, leading the fight, getting it done. It should have been Saul's chance to prove himself. He's the one everyone should have been looking to go into combat with Goliath. But verse 11, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. These soldiers, the Israelite army, they were supposed to be living in the promises of God. They were supposed to be the most faithful, resolute people on earth because they knew they had God's favor and his hand was fighting for them. Instead, we see them terrified and deeply shaken. Saul and his army should have been embracing their rightful place as God's chosen people and the beneficiaries of his promises. But to find a hero and a role model, we have to move the story 12 miles away to Bethlehem, the town made famous every Christmas around the world. Verse 12, Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, a Ephraimite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, nailed it. Had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Now the first time we encountered David is in the previous chapter in chapter 16. At this point Saul had repeatedly disobeyed God and God lets the prophet Samuel know that he will no longer support Saul as king and another will be raised up. So he sends Samuel, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem There, Samuel meets Jesse and is looking for one of his sons to be the next king. Jesse presents seven of his sons who all look impressive, but Samuel knew that the Lord hadn't chosen any of them. And then Jesse says the youngest son is still out in the field tending to the sheep. Finally, David comes and the Lord tells Samuel that he's the one. And this is the first time we meet David in the previous chapter. Samuel then ceremonially anoints David with oil and declares him the future king. But that doesn't mean that David is immediately escorted to the palace, but rather David enters into a time of waiting. While waiting, David took a position with sole service as a musician and an armor bearer, but it appears that that was a part-time or an occasional job, and it looks like David is still working full-time as a shepherd looking after his father's sheep. Down to verse 16. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give them these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul's army, uh, Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. So David leaves. He's patiently waiting. He's already had a promise in chapter 16 that he is one day going to be the king of Israel. Right now, he's just being faithful day in, day out. And today's faithfulness means leaving the sheep with someone else. I've got to go and deliver some pizza to the brothers. The 12-mile journey for David from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah it would have taken half a day. So David is possibly running up there with supplies, doing what he needs to do, and then quickly turning around to resume taking care of the sheep. And this standoff has been going on for 40 days. Back to verse 20. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine champion from Gath came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the man asked? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. In short, this is the offer of a lifetime. Now I'm glad that we don't arrange marriages in a transaction like that anymore, but just the hefty lump sum of cash And being exempted from taxes is enough to get anyone's attention. But we know that Goliath is undefeatable. So much so that the professional soldiers aren't even considering the offer of a lifetime. Far more importantly than the reward is the simple fact that these soldiers represent God's people. The people that God had made covenant with. The beneficiaries of his promises. And here they are absolutely stunned and frozen with fear. Verse 26. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he got angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Now, if David would have listened to his brothers and just quietly gone back to the sheep, I don't think anybody would have blamed him. It's probable that other soldiers had younger brothers that were running supplies to them from back home, and then they just went back in one piece. There was no pressure from the people for David to take on the giant. But David believed in and was committed to the promises of God. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Now I'm going to read between the lines a little bit here. But I'm guessing that Saul is relieved that someone is stupid enough to go and fight this guy. For 40 days... No one's been willing to do it. The professional soldiers are not willing to do it. He knows he's the one that's supposed to be up there fighting, and he's not willing to do it. Saul is probably relieved that finally someone has stepped forward, only to find out that it's this young kid, not even old enough to join the army. Saul's response, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. And here, Saul is, of course, pointing at the obvious, and it's not a wild conclusion. Verse 34, David persisted, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. You know, while there's a lot that can be said about the preparation that God took David through, what clearly stands out is that David has a confidence, a deep, unshaking confidence in God's ability to fulfill his plans and purposes in the face of a formidable enemy. The certainty, the confidence and faith we can see in David is noticeably missing in King Saul. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. And I was looking through some old pictures uh, this past week, and I saw this one of my two sons. And uh, we have that there. There we go. So those are the wood boys. And one day, they decided to put my clothes on. And that's the mental image that came to me when I read about David putting on Saul's armor. There is one time, uh, I wasn't here for this, but Megan assures me it's a true story, that one day uh, Megan called for pizza for the kids, and then while the pizza guy knocked on the door, Elijah, my oldest, put on one of my shirts, answered the door in one of my shirts, which is obviously way too big, and in the best British accent you've ever heard, said, hello, my name's daddy, how many pizzas do you have? Pizza guy was a little confused, I'm sure. (laughs) The armor, not fitting David, didn't deter him. Verse 40. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them in his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog? He roared at David. Do you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. The bit we don't tell kids in Sunday school. And then I will give you a dead body of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give it to us. Goliath cursed David. And defy the God of Israel. And David repeats over and over again that this is not his battle. This is the Lord's battle. It's not in my strength, but in God's strength that this battle will be won. Even though David has fought and won against bears and lions. Even though it's his sling that he's carrying, even though he's the one that stooped down and got five stones out of the stream, even though he's the only one willing to go and fight Goliath, he understands it's not my battle, it's God's battle. Verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed over the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sheriam as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. David, he won the victory. He didn't turn up that day looking for a fight. But when he got there, saw there was a fight, he was ready. He was there just to deliver bread and cheese to his brothers, check up on them, see how they're doing, report back to dad, how everything's going. Turned up, found out there was gonna be a fight and he was ready. And this wasn't the last battle that David was fighting. If you know the life of David, you'll know that his life was filled with war and struggle. One of David's men actually had to go and kill Goliath's brother later on, a number of years after this. In the life of David, this wasn't a one and done. This was not the last fight that David would have But David here is presented to us as a role model of faith. And what we can see is that faith keeps us ready with the right response. Faith keeps us ready with the right response. (laughs) David, he's living with a promise. We already did an overview and a summary of chapter 16 where David is anointed to be the next king. Where Samuel comes to his small village and says, okay, there's another son somewhere. Where's this other son? He's like, well, I guess we got David out in the field. I mean, someone should probably go get him. David is the least likely person to ever go on to do anything great and amazing. Not even his own family believes he's impressive. There is nothing that looks like he is going to achieve anything noteworthy, but he has a promise from God. He has been anointed by the prophet to be the next king. He has a promise that looks impossible to fulfill this young boy Completely unqualified to be king. No earthly reason that he should be God's chosen person to be the king, but he's got a promise. Fast forward to chapter 18, David has become respected around the king's court, including building a strong relationship with the king's son, Jonathan. Saul had David stay with him full time instead of part time. David was promoted as the commander of the armies. David gained a good reputation for being victorious in the military. This is something from 1 Samuel 18 verse seven. This was their song, singing to David as he was victorious that Saul has killed his thousands, but David is 10 thousands. Plus David marries Saul's daughter, Michael. He's married to a princess. So we go from unknown, forgotten, small town shepherd boy with a promise to respected member of the ruling class, a successful commander in the army, married to a princess. In short, he goes from being nobody's choice of being a king, not even his own family's, in chapter 16, to being the most popular and most logical choice to be king in chapter 18. Between chapter 16 and 18 is chapter 17, where he kills and defeats Goliath. God used this one moment to transform everything. This one moment of faithfulness, this one afternoon of David being willing to stand up against the giant, defying the armies of Israel, God used that one moment to change everything. David went from there is no way you're ever going to amount to anything, to oh yeah, David's definitely going to be king one day, all because of one afternoon of faithfulness, of I'm going to step up and I'm going to take charge and I'm going to put my faith into action. David wasn't looking for a fight. He wasn't looking for the chance to promote himself. But when it came, he was ready and he stepped up. David, unlike everyone else, was ready with the right response. Faith means things can change in a moment. Amen. Faith means things can change in a moment. There's a moment where, Megan and I saw this uh, in our lives, we believed strongly that the Lord had called us to move to New York City. This is when we were youngest, before we had kids. We believed that the Lord was telling us and calling us to move to New York City and so we would take these trips out there. We were living in Montana at the time, so we'd take these trips to New York City, and we were hoping the doors would open up and hoping the things would come together. And we took one trip, and we were able to go out there. And then this one trip that we went there, the hope was, what we talked about, and what we were praying for, is that we would leave with a date. Like, this is when we're moving. And so we get on the plane, we go to New York City, and we're hoping to be able to meet with some pastors that we were hoping to pair up with and start as a church was getting ready to start. That meeting fell through. We then found that this church was having another series of meetings. So we said, well, hey, can we be a part of that? And like, no, 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 this is only for people that are already committed and already part of it. So that door was shut down. Then it was like, well, can we catch somebody for lunch? And lunch didn't work out. So it's like, oh, my gosh, we came all the way to New York City to try and get some activity, try and get something happening. But nothing's happening. Like, there's no open doors anywhere. So finally, to waste some time, we decided to go to a neighborhood in New York City, to go to Roosevelt Island. If you're familiar with this city, it's a small island between Manhattan and Queens. And we decided to go to Roosevelt Island. We'd seen something, and Megan liked the idea of going there and possibly somewhere to live. And so let's just go waste some time because there's nothing else to do. We wanted this to like, start opening doors. No doors were opening. Frustrating. So we go to Roosevelt Island, and as we're walking, we see one of the apartment buildings has got a, you know, rooms available or rooms for rent or showings today. So we said, we got nothing else to do. Let's just go and sort of look at some apartments. So we looked at some apartments, loved it. Loved the location, loved the apartment. It was all awesome. And we were like, this would be a great place to live. And then we asked the stupid question in New York City, how much does it cost? (laughs) And then depression really set in. So now we're really feeling down. We believe we got this promise. We believe this is what God called us to do. We believe this is what we needed to do. We believe this was our next step. So then as we're leaving, we go to the Starbucks on Roosevelt Island. Megan's in the restroom, and I'm waiting for our drinks. As I'm waiting there, a young lady comes up to me and says, hey, do you want to live here? Because if you do, you can take over my apartment. And I got my apartment in the 2008 recession, which means I get it at a discounted rate. And if you take over my contract, you get the same discount. Megan, someone wants to talk to us. That ended up being the apartment that we lived in for nearly three years. I I don't know how else to say it. Like, I, I could not... How am I supposed to force that to happen? How am I supposed to engineer that? But in a moment, things changed for us. We would not be here today if we hadn't have spent those three years in New York City. That prepared us for what was next, which prepared us for getting here. That was an an incredible moment, but it happened in a moment of some young lady just walking up, hey, do you wanna move here? Because if you do, I got an apartment. And that is where we lived for three years. That was Elijah's first home. Faith means things can change in a moment. David went from a nobody with a promise to somebody watching the promise unfold because of what happened on one afternoon. If he would have taken his brother's advice and gone back home, or listened to Saul as he was pointing out how ridiculous this is, or been intimidated by Goliath's threats, then chapter 18 would have looked very different than how it looked. Now David's faith is contrasted with two other people in this passage. Both are threats of the promise being realized in our lives. First one is Goliath. Verse 10, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Israel was defined by their promises. But Goliath has no concern for the promises of God. Goliath is defying God, ignoring God's promises for the people he's opposing because of pride. Goliath is aware of his own natural strength, and he thinks that's enough. Enough to outfight the promises of God. Enough to outfight the chosen people of God living in his promises. Goliath was ruled by pride because of his own strength and abilities. We also see King Saul. King Saul is driven by fear. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Saul was head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. He was king. But instead of stepping up, we read this. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. He's hiding and trying to outsource his responsibility. Saul is rendered useless because of fear. Goliath was outside of the promises of God because he looked at himself and decided, I'm good enough. Saul was outside the promises of God because he looked at himself and decided, I'm not good enough. The problem for both Goliath and Saul was they were looking at themselves instead of God. The outcome looked very different, but the root is the same. They were obsessed with themselves. Saul, his own inabilities, his own weakness, He couldn't possibly face this giant. There's no way we could possibly win this. There's no way that I'm adequate. Goliath was, I'm so strong. Who is this boy that comes to me? Why would you send a dog with a stick? I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I can take this army down. I can win this fight. I am enough. It looked very different, but it was rooted in the same problem that they were both eyes firmly locked on themselves instead of on the promises of God. Faith overcomes fear and pride. David repeats in his exchange with Goliath that it's God that will bring about his defeat, even though David's got experience with bears and lions, even though David's got a sling, even though he's got some stones, even though he's willing to go, even though he's gonna get Goliath's sword and chop off his head, he understands it's God's battle. In this way, David is a great role model of how to conduct ourselves in victory, humble and God-honoring. Also present that day were the two armies. And just as it's true today as it was true then, peer pressure and mob mentality are very, very real. Saul and Goliath both had whole armies, crowds of people that they influenced. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear. This is the army of God's chosen people. The courage and the certainty that they swore to in faithfulness as they made covenant with God at the time of Joshua appears to be gone. The Philistines who were driven by pride, they were a pagan nation with no regard for the promises of God, and they were certain that Goliath would win this one for them. Fear and pride aren't the only things that can keep us distant from the promises of God, but they're certainly prevalent today just as they were on that afternoon thousands of years ago. We see fear every day. People feeling helpless, people giving up, broken spirits, many people not trying because they just believe it's all hopeless. More and more people are simply waiting for life to happen rather than acting with faith and confidence in the promises of God. It's difficult to make good decisions when you're lost in fear. When you look at yourself and determine that you're not good enough and have no regard for how God and his promises affect things, it can be like Saul and the Israelites completely paralyzing and in a different way pride that we see in Goliath has its negative impact others have gone to one extreme of being paralyzed in fear looking at themselves and concluding that they are not able to step into anything that nothing good can come of this there's no way around this others step into this and conclude that they don't need the promises of God they're ultra confident in their own abilities rejecting the promises of God because they don't sense the need for them A misguided belief that doing better than the person next to you is the best thing to aim for. Having no regard for God, and they don't see the need for Him, no comprehension of what they're missing out on. Very often drifting with the crowd means distancing ourselves from the promises of God because the crowd is either paralyzed with fear because they're focused on themselves or distant from the promises of God because they're obsessed with their own ability or someone else's ability to fulfill their ambitions. This is the norm for the crowd, but faith stops us being led by the crowd. Faith stops us being led by the crowd. Will you do me a favor, just turn to the person next to you, look at them eye to eye, and say, you're a glass of water. It's not a romantic thing, so if you made it romantic with your spouse, that's on you. I don't have a glass of water, but I, I have a bottle of water. If I put this water in the fridge and it comes out super cold a few hours later, I set it down, give it time. It will adjust to room temperature. Conversely, if in the woodhouse we have a tea kettle because of you know the obvious reasons. If I pour water from the tea kettle and I just let it set for a period of time, it will adjust to room temperature. The water will adjust to room temperature unless you do something to it. We, you, me, we will adjust our temperature to the crowd unless we do something to make sure that does not happen. We've just read the crowds of people. They were terrified with fear. The Israelite army, the Philistines, incredibly prideful. What do we need God for? We don't need him. You're missing out by putting God first. There's no need to put any confidence in the promises of God. We can do it without him. We got a great big strong Goliath. We got something else going on. I can do it, I can do it myself. What do we need God for? I'm a self-made man. I don't need God. The crowd will absorb people and our temperature will adjust unless you do something to it. My friends, if you do not want your water to adjust to the temperature of the crowd, We need to be intentional about making it a different temperature. This is why, if one person claps, we all have to. As boring as it is, this is why, keep saying, read your Bible. Spend time in prayer, spend time in worship, fellowship with other believers. Do something in your life that is going to ensure that your water doesn't just adjust to the temperature of the crowd around you because the crowd is paralyzed in fear and the crowd is operating in pride and is completely pushing God away and is walking away from the promises of God. Whether it's pride or fear or a mixture of both, they're abandoning the promises of God. If we do not want that in our lives, and I hope you do not, then we need to do something to keep our temperature different. We're presented with David as the example of faith and then two different angles of people opposing the promises of God. Saul was ruled by fear and Goliath driven by pride. Both had their eyes firmly fixed on themselves. Saul was focused on his inadequacy. Goliath was convinced of his own power and David, he knew they were both wrong. He believed in and was committed to the promises of God. Faith takes our sense of security off of ourselves and places it firmly on the creator of the universe. Our confidence stops being rooted in our own strength. Focusing on the promises of God is a remedy. The promises of God build courage. The promises of God build courage. Saul had courage. Saul, sorry, David had courage. Saul was paralyzed with fear. We're not accepting defeat because of our inabilities. We're not looking at the things in the world that could drive someone to fear. We're not anxiously wondering what could happen in the world, but we're simply asking, how can I be faithful today? How can I courageously stand in the face of opposition and determine that I am going to be a faithful person? The promises of God inspire humility. Goliath had no sense of humility. He was aware of how strong and how big he was. And our sense of security as believers is not found in our own abilities. My surety about the future is not in my hands. No matter how good I am, no matter how strong I am, no matter how experienced I am, I cannot fulfill the promises of God in my life. They're his promises, and he's the only one who can fulfill them. The promises of God keep us ready. David was anointed. He was going to be king. But in the meantime, he took care of the sheep. By taking care of lions and bears, he gained some experience, but when he turned up, He showed that he was not ultra confident in his own abilities, but he was incredibly confident and incredibly sure of God coming through on his promises. Repeatedly, he says that God is going to have the victory and he was ready to step up and play his part so God could bring about the victory for the nation. The promises of God determines our response. This means fighting the temptation to adjust to the crowd. Today, we're talking about slingshots and cutting off the heads of giants we could just as easily be talking about forgiving people. We could just as easily be talking about showing kindness to the people we disagree with or having patience in the middle of frustration, about valuing godly character and conduct when others are ready to compromise, about not letting the political and cultural division cause us to stop loving our neighbors. The promises of God determines our response. The promises of God shape our heart. I don't expect people who don't share our faith to care about the same things I do. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we know that our hearts are being transformed and changed to align with God's values. The prayer for every believer is to have our cares and our concerns match the cares and concerns of God. That his love for people would be authentic in our own lives. And the promises of God drive us to faith. Faith is believing in and committing to a promise. And the Bible says, faith comes by hearing the word. And the word is loaded with the promises of God. And by hearing the promises of God over and over again, it builds a faith in our lives. The Bible is intended to be the God's story of his promises unfolding in human history. And as we've mentioned, this is ultimately fulfilled on the cross by Jesus. And the story about David and Goliath, the whole nation had victory because the actions of one kid And this week it caused me to remember what Paul had written hundreds of years later in the book of Romans as he's trying to help people understand the victory of Jesus. That by the actions of one man, sin entered the world. But the actions of another man, Jesus, all people can find hope in a Savior and embrace a restored relationship with the Heavenly Father. I read this from Romans 5. There is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who believe it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now there's a a few times in the New Testament where there's the understanding that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises. We're told that in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Jesus. That the Old Testament is filled with pictures to help us gain an understanding of what it is that Jesus would accomplish and who it was and the kind of savior that we needed. Consequently, David's actions are a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's not the full story, but it helps us grow in understanding and appreciation of what Jesus did. David was destined to be a great king. Jesus is destined to be the king of kings. David trusted in the promises of God. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. David won a victory on behalf of a nation. Jesus won an eternal victory on behalf of all who had placed their faith in him. David showed that pride and fear will keep us distant from the promises of God. Jesus was a perfect role model of humility and the Prince of Peace and the hope against all fear. In the Romans passage that we read, Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam, another foreshadow. He would say something about Adam and compare it to Jesus, but let's reread what Paul writes about Jesus. In verse 16, God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, that our relationship with him can be repaired and restored. Verse 17, all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. The ultimate promise, that Jesus fulfills for you and for me is that we can have our relationship restored and made right with God, that we can live triumphant over the power of sin, that we no longer need to fear death because our security is assured through him. This means we don't have to live in fear anymore, the kind of fear that consumes Saul and distanced him from God's promises. It means that our eyes are wide open to the problems of living in pride, and it was pride that Goliath showed that caused him to resist God's promises. In light of the fulfilled promises of Jesus, we can live in peace, confidence, hope, humbly submitted to God, enjoying our restored relationship with him, embracing a life of faith, believing in and committing to his promise. Most people have good reasons for giving up on faith, but everyone has better reasons for staying faithful. Faith keeps us ready with the right response. Faith means things can change in a moment. Faith overcomes fear and pride. Faith stops us being led by the crowd. The promises of God build courage. The promises of God inspire humility. The promises of God keep us ready. The promises of God determines our response. The promises of God shape our hearts. The promises of God drive us to faith. Faith is believing in and committing to a promise. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I've got a couple of questions for you. Hopefully you have a chance this week to take a few minutes and read through these and maybe write these down, talk them over with somebody. The first question is this, is fear or pride the biggest challenge to your faith? Is fear or pride the biggest challenge to your faith? And if you can identify which one causes you the biggest challenge, maybe you could also start to find out why. Second question, where do you need to be ready? What's the right response? Faith keeps us ready with the right response. Where do you need to be ready? What's the right response? I wanna reread one of those verses from Romans. God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. All who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. The ultimate promise that Jesus fulfills for you and for me is that we can have our relationship restored and made right with God, that we can live triumphant over sin, no longer fearing death because our security is assured through him for eternity. This is the good news of Jesus. We need a savior. And God took responsibility to send a savior, to become humanity. He took on humanity by sending his son. And 2,000 years ago, we celebrated it just a few weeks ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the son of God, went to the cross. And on the cross, he paid the price that you and I could never ever pay, but we definitely owe. And he took the penalty for you, for me. You've got a list of regrets. I've got a list of regrets. The Bible calls it sin. There's not a single person that can claim that they do not have that list. We all have it. That's the bad news. The good news is God loves you. He loves me so much that he would send his son to the cross to pay that price so that we could restore that relationship. That is the fulfillment of the promises of God is that Jesus would die for you and for me. Three days later, There was an empty tomb. Jesus rose from the grave. By raising from the dead, he conquered the power of sin and death once and for all so that we can have life and we can live for him. And not only just here and now on earth, but also into an eternity. And this is for everyone, everywhere, ever, regardless of social status, regardless of nationality, regardless of background. If you would put your faith in Jesus, he welcomes you in with open arms. And want to put that invitation out to anyone here today. You may be here, you may have been in church a million times before, or this may be the first time you've ever set foot in a church, I don't know. But you're here, this is the message you've listened to. And maybe, just maybe, God's used something from today. It was one of the worship songs, one of the Bible passages I read, something to get you to the point where you're ready to say, yes, I need a savior. I need to get right with God. So i to invite everyone here, if you want just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, it's just to give discretion to people around you so that we can focus on what really matters right now but if you be honest enough and brave enough today to say you know what I'm not following God but I want to start my relationship with him is not right it is not restored but I want it to be I'd love to pray for you today so if that's you if you just put your hand up just for a moment just so I know who we're praying for thank you thank you anyone else here amen wonderful thank you thank you I give you my word, we're not gonna embarrass you. We are not going to do anything that's gonna make you regret it on the drive home, but when we pray together in a moment, I'd love to know who we're praying for. Amen, thank you, I did see you. Amen, anybody else here? Wonderful, thank you. Amen, I did see that, thank you. I don't wanna prolong this, but if this is it, if this is your moment, I don't wanna skim by. If this is for you, anyone else here today? Amazing. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with people making the best decision anyone could ever make today. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer together, and we do this at the end of every service. I'll say a line, and then you can repeat it back. The words are on the screen. But I believe if you pray a prayer like this, full of faith and full of confidence, it changes lives. So come on, everybody. Let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on everybody, let's celebrate one more time, amen.